Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Colin McCann, whose latest novel is A Paragon, uh, also 13 Ways of Looking, Transatlantic, Let the Great World Spin, which won a National Book Award, Zoli. There are 10 works of fiction plus this nonfiction. And this particular book, A Paragon, looks at the Palestine-Israeli conflict and the story of two friends, Rami and Bassam, Bassam Araman and Rami Elhanan. It's fiction, but it's also not fiction because these are two actual people. So, Colin McCann, let's go back. What brought you to the idea of writing A Paragon? Yeah, A Paragon is a novel, but I call it a sort of um, a hybrid novel because I sort of, I doubt the word fiction and, and, and nonfiction. And I think you and I have even talked about this in, in the past. What does the word fiction mean to shape? For me, this is a story about two fathers one from Israel, one from Palestine, who lose their daughters to the conflict and they become the best of friends. But as you said, these are real men, Rami Elhanan and Bassam Aramin. In fact, before the whole virus hit, they were traveling around the United States with me. And so my characters from my novel were appearing on stage with me and talking about the process of being involved in a book. And and people may say, well, how can you write a novel about real people, but it's something I've been doing for about 20 years, ever since uh, writing a book called Dancer, which was a fictionalization of the life of Rudolf Nureyev. Really, to me, it's not about whether it's fiction or nonfiction. It's about the, the pulsing, beating heart of the story that happens there. It's about storytelling. And that might confuse the people in the in the Library of Congress, but it doesn't confuse most readers because they get it. It's me sort of going into the heads and the hearts of these two extraordinary characters who become friends through the force of their shared grief. And they use their grief as a weapon to travel around the world and to talk about what happened to their daughters in order to put a crack in the wall, whether the wall be an actual physical wall or whether the wall be a, a, a psychological wall. And the book then sort of takes place over the course of a day between Jerusalem and Jericho, but it also tries to become, I suppose, a compendium of human experience at the same time too. So it takes place sort of everywhere. It takes place in, in Ireland, in the States, in, in South Africa. There's a lot of stuff about bird migration and, and, and so on. I suppose it's it's an ambitious, <laughs> I hope it's an, an ambitious take on what the idea of stories and storytelling can be in the modern age. How did you come across the story of Bassam and Rami to begin with? 
So I'm president of an organization, a non-profit organization called Narrative 4, and I'm co-founder with Lisa Consiglio. And Narrative 4 is a global organization where we get young people to step into one another's shoes and to tell one another's stories in order to create what we call radical empathy. We're in 12 countries around the world and, and all over the United States. We went to, to Palestine and to Israel in order to investigate if we would be able to you know, set up a Narrative 4 branch in the West Bank, one in Gaza, also one in Israel. And in the course of my travels over there with a group of artists, musicians, uh, activists, there were about 12 of us all together, I had this extraordinary experience of um, traveling through the Holy Land and on my second to last day, I went into the little town of Beit Jala. It was four o'clock in the afternoon, a cold November afternoon. Walked up this rickety staircase where these two men were sitting and, and, and they were going to talk to us. One was named Rami, the other was named Bassam. And within a half an hour of listening to them, my world was completely cleaved open by the extraordinary nature of their story. Rami talked about how he lost his daughter Smadar to a suicide bomber in 1997. And Bassam talked about how he lost his daughter Abir to a rubber bullet fired from close range into the back of her head when she was just 10 years old. The two men, who would seem like they should be natural-born enemies, are the most extraordinary friends. They told this story, and it hit me with the force of an axe when they told me the story. This is five years ago now. I went away and started to try and contemplate what their story meant, not just to me, but to ideas of peace and storytelling and reconciliation and non-reconciliation. So I embarked on a pretty reckless project, I suppose, Richard. Okay, so you meet them, you go home. Were you working on another book at the time? No, I just finished 13 Ways of Looking. I was actually casting around looking for another book. But the thing that I did was I thought, okay, I've got to do this from an Irish angle, you know, which is not how the book turns out in the end. But I did spend about six months following a completely different trajectory until I realized that, no, I had to go to the heart of the matter. I had to go into Rami's story. I had to go into Bassam's story. As you know, it's written in, in quite a experimental style. It's a, a thousand and one different cantos, I call them, you know, small pieces that relate to one another and keep echoing back and forth. Well, it was an extraordinary experience to write. It felt like I was writing a piece of music. It felt like I was, um, you know, engaged in some sort of symphony, but it was very much um, a, a conscious gathering of all these different musical tastes and styles and uh, making it as contrapuntal as I could get. The novel is sort of deliberately jarring and maybe even confusing at first because I found the whole situation in Israel and Palestine to be incredibly confusing and I wanted to acknowledge that confusion right up at the very front. In fact, after five years, it's still confusing. It begins in 2016 as they're meeting each other and suddenly it goes back in time and back in time and back in time. And then you bring in the birds and various stories. And after a while it, it develops its own rhythm. Right. Right. When you began it at that point at the beginning, where did that idea of making it 
1,001 cantos, some of which are a picture, some of which are several pages. Yeah. Where did that structure come from? I wish I could tell you that it was conscious and, 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 and that I knew all along that I was going to be able to you know, find this sort of structure and it would fit in with all the available techniques that I, that, that I wanted to use. Quite honestly, I don't know. And I think one of the things that I want to acknowledge in, the, in this book is the primacy of those words, I don't know, or I am confused. I always think back to Whitman saying, do I contradict myself very well? Then I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. The same in the process of, you know, coming to this particular book. I felt like I was a musician. I was entering a studio or no, entering a, a hall, a concert hall, in fact. And then I was conducting all these different musicians that who were in the pit alongside me. But every now and then the back doors of the hall would burst open and another musician would come along and say, play me, play me, play me. And I had to try and balance all these things in the air and in the end suggest to the reader that they were they were entering a piece of music that would circulate and recirculate and always come back to the story of Rami and Bassam and their daughters. When creating this, as you say, it sort of just happened organically. How did the different pieces come together? I mean, you knew that you would have this theme, if you want to call it this main theme, or the two main themes which would intertwine. But it goes off in different directions. For instance, uh, this is a story of a man named Christopher Costigan in the Dead Sea, mm -hmm. uh, a woman collecting sounds. There's even reference, of course, to Ireland, mm -hmm. which to me, goes back to what you originally said, was the idea was going to place Bassam and Rami kind of fictionalized as Ireland, and then you realized, I can't do that? Yeah, I mean, what happened to me was that I realized that this was an extraordinary story about two men, two friends, and their daughters. I also realized that I was complicit in the story and the story mattered to me and then it began to hit me that we are all somehow complicit in the story of Rami and Bassam whether that be as taxpayers as people who are invested in the idea of either Israel and or Palestine um, it's also the meeting place of you know three continents Europe the Middle East and Africa and also Jerusalem seems to throb in all our imaginations whether you know you know the birthplace of at least three major religions as well so we're, we're all there somehow and I want to, to suggest that this small story is also an epic story. And it seems to me that it's the job of literature to be both epic and tiny at the same time, so that it can enter into the supposedly sort of anonymous corners of human experience and capture them, and at the same time, you know, frame it in a big historical context. And to do that, I had to find a structure. And then I found the word a paragon, which means a shape with a countably infinite number of sides. And I thought, what an extraordinary word. What an extraordinary concept as well. Um, I sort of went from there. When you finally began to form the idea of what you were doing, then it became research, balancing fiction and nonfiction, what exactly is fictional here other than 
getting into mines that you couldn't get into? Or is that it? You know, all of this story is quote unquote true. You know, I read so much fiction, nonfiction that isn't true because it isn't true to the issues of the human heart. But let me tell you just like something that's fictionalized, for instance. Rami drives a motorbike and I've been on his motorbike. It's a 750cc Yamaha. And I have him in in the novel driving a 750cc motorbike. However, Rami's real motorbike is, is an automatic, which is kind of boring to me. So I put him on a motorbike with gears. And that's a simple change. But I'll tell you what the, the change does. It puts the reader on the motorbike in a way. I want the reader to feel the throb of the engine. And the best way for the reader to feel the throb of the engine is to suggest, you know, these little tiny movements of the gears and so on. I want people to be present in the pulse of the moment so that a bike with gears was better than an automatic. There are little tiny things like that where I changed it. But in truth, quote unquote, and truth is a wonderful word for us, you know, these days, some people talk about this idea of being post-truth. I don't even know what that means. But most of the novel will be what Rami and Bassam would call true. But they would be able to recognize certain things that I invented. But essentially, it's true to their human spirit. So on some level, if you called it nonfiction and you said some of the characters and events have slightly changed, that yeah. would be more or less it. It, yes. it seems to me, for instance... Amos Oz's A Tale of Love and Darkness, mm. which is his memoir, when I asked him how he knew about what happened in the 1930s to his parents, he said, that was my DNA memory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And it strikes me in that sense, your book is closer to the, quote, facts than his book, which is called A Memoir. Look, I mean, I love that book and I only judge literature on the basis of, of how, you know, it places the words down on the page and it confronts the heartbreak of the world. And, and I think Oz does that in extraordinary ways. And I am at the stage where I don't know actually what is fiction and nonfiction. I will tell you this, that if I were to write about myself you know, in some sort of memoir, I am pretty sure that I would tell more lies than truth. Um, <laughs> I would not trust myself at all to tell the truth. But whereas with a story like this, I trust myself to tell uh, certainly my perception of what's true uh, for Rami and Bassam. The, the extraordinary thing is that both men found it extraordinarily difficult to read the book. That, to me, made it successful because they felt like they were entering back into a territory that they didn't really want to go into, despite the fact that they tell the story sometimes five, six times a day to different groups around the world. But so I went into the more anonymous corners of like, you know, their daughters and what they wear and what sort of music they were listening to. And, you know, Smadar, who was, who was, who was killed in a bombing in 1997, she was a fan of Sinead O'Connor. And I talk about Sinead O'Connor and I talk about Prince writing the song, Nothing Compares to You and, and that sort of thing. And I extend the novel outwards in different directions so that most of us know that song, Nothing Compares to You. And if we think that she was actually listening to that song on her headphones as she was walking through the marketplace in Jerusalem, 
it becomes extraordinarily personal to us. We are there. And that's the job of the uh, of the writer, to put us into that place. And as Kafka says, you know, to, to axe open that frozen sea within us. And sometimes to talk about the hard stuff. I mean, it's a hard topic to take on, as you know. And i I got to be honest with you, Richard. I mean, I was pretty ignorant of what was going on in Israel and Palestine. I'd written a novel called Transatlantic, which was about the Irish peace process. And then a friend of mine said to me, you think Ireland's complicated? You should try going over to Palestine and Israel. A part of me said, well, hmm, that's, yeah, let me let me see what I can, because I, I was fascinated by it and became obsessed by it, but deeply, deeply, deeply ignorant about what was going on. Amos Oz said to me when I interviewed him in 2002 that the, one of the problems with the Israeli-Palestine situation is that on some level, both sides are right. It's not even both sides. I mean, that's why I called the novel a paragon. It's all sides. I had literally hundreds of Israelis and hundreds of Palestinians read the book. I mean, before I even did drafts, I had dozens of people reading it, including, say, Raja Shahade, the great Palestinian writer, and Emily Jasser, the fantastic artist, and Asaf Gavran from Israel, and all sorts of people read it for me. And they pointed out, you know, places where I was making mistakes, but sometimes they would point to the exact same thing, and, and they would each have a completely different take on the, the exact same quote-unquote uh, fact and say, well, this is wrong or this is right. And it's, it was dangerous and beautiful territory to step into as a writer because the prospect of failure was there. And as Beckett says, you know, the prospect of failure is vivifying in a way because you're taking something on that, you know, is sort of terribly difficult to take on. Can you give an example of one particular quote-unquote fact that drew so many different responses? Do you remember? Just even, you know, the name of a town. Do you call the town Hebron or do you call the town Al-Khalil? I remember another phrase that there's a phrase in there in Rami's head where he says, the character says, you know, no one in Israel lives unbombed. And the Palestinian reader was very upset at the phrase, whereas an Israeli reader said, oh, that's exactly right. That's how we feel. You know, certainly during the, the Second Intifada, we felt that nobody lived unbombed. But the Palestinian reader thought that it was a, a phrase that didn't actually capture the Palestinian experience correctly. And, and so, so I, you know, all of this I had to balance musically, you know. It's like going in and talking to the orchestra and saying, okay, let's bring down that violin a little bit and let's bring up the contrabass here a little bit more. And essentially to try to tell it as truly as I saw it. But also I had no specific skin in the game in the sense that I wasn't necessarily pro-Palestinian nor pro, pro-Israeli. I am pro-peace. That comes across very, very strongly in the book. I got some stinkers for sure and people you know, taking the book on. But in general, the response from all sides has been pretty extraordinary. I think part of it helps in, in, in that, you know, Rami and Bassam are there um, and they're standing alongside me. I mean, the whole idea of cultural appropriation is really powerful right now. And, uh, you know, I'd like to speak to that if, if I could, 
because I think it's so so true, and I, I salute the people who are talking about it in the universities and at the highest levels. There has been so many times that we as writers, as artists, as thinkers, as corporations, as countries have gone into other places and appropriated and condescended and patronized and, and have stolen from people. But there's another form of this argument, and it's actually on the exact same side, which says, ah, this is also about cultural celebration. Because guess what? I am ignorant. I need to know. I don't know. I'm confused. Can I come in? Can I understand? Can you explain this to me? Can you, you know, balloon my heart outwards more? If I go in with humility and with grace and respect into another culture, what can happen is really truly extraordinary. So it's not all cultural appropriation and not all cultural celebration. There are mixtures between the two. And one of the things that I'm, I think a lot about is this isn't really necessarily a novel only about Israel and Palestine. It's also a novel about, you know, the South Bronx. It's also a novel about San Francisco. It's also a novel about, you know, Ireland and South Africa and so on. Because it takes place in the human territory that we recognize. And it's two fathers who become the best of friends through their grief. One of the questions that I had written down here, and I realize that in some sense there is no answer, and maybe you just answered it, which was, can we trace when things went bad in that region? Mm. Can we look at the terrorist Israeli groups in 48, the second intifada? Right. And there's the realization that asking that question is maybe the wrong question to ask. Yeah. You're never going to get the same answer. You know, when did the first intifada start? When did the second intifada start? When did all this begin? Was it after 48? Was it, you know, there are so many answers to these different questions. What Rami and Bassam both say, they're not going to talk about one state. They're not going to talk about two states. They're not going to talk about eight states. What they want to do is they want to talk to each other. And they say, we need to know each other. If we do not know each other above ground, we will end up knowing each other six feet below ground. And part of their territory is to say, you know, let's talk about the human emotion here. Let's talk about what this means to actual thumping living lives right now. And, you know, they talk about the occupation and they're pretty solid in terms of, you know, their politics. They are unafraid. They both say that the occupation has to end before anything else really begins. Now, even that word, even in the United States, the word occupation is one that sets hearts fluttering and, and people get upset sometimes at its use. But both men, one Israeli, one Palestinian, talk about it quite forcefully and then talk about the death of their daughters. These other contrapuntal elements that I mentioned before, how did you find them? How did you bring them in? And how did you know where to place them? I'm thinking specifically of the story of the man traveling down to find the Dead Sea, uh, the story of the woman Dahlia finding sounds, even, you know, various little pieces about birds. How did you know where to find them, where to place them, and how they came into you so that you could put them together in the book? So when I first met Rami and Bassam, I met them in a town called Beit Jala. So... One of the things I did when I came back to the United States and started thinking about them is I simply Googled the town of Beit Jala. 
And I came upon this random fact that there's one of two bird ringing or bird banding centers in Palestine happens to be in Beit Jala. Well, I didn't know what bird ringing or bird banding was. It's where you tag a bird and you, you capture a bird in, in a mist net and you tag it and then it goes into a, a computer database. And then I began to realize, wow, this area is the second busiest migratory path in the world for birds. So these birds are coming from all over the world. They're coming from Ireland. They're coming from South Africa. They're coming from Sweden, from Germany and so on, landing on this piece of land, being tagged there and then and taking off again. And I thought, how beautiful is that? And then I began to read about birds. And then, you know, the more I read about birds, I sort of remembered certain things that I'd read. And I had read, for instance, about Francois Mitterrand's last meal being a songbird called an ortolan. And I thought, oh, that fits in nicely because ortolans were found on this hillside in Beit Jala. And basically what was happening to me is that I had a tuning fork in my chest or in my head and 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 every time something sounded right or felt right it sort of rang that that tuning fork and i followed an instinct sometimes a bit of a mad instinct to create a music around these two characters so in certain ways it was like going down the rabbit hole and then coming back up out of the rabbit hole sometimes months later and richard i have to tell you there were days when i would write something and i'd read it the next day and I say, where the hell did that come from? <laughs> you know, I would look at it and say, I can't even remember how I knew that. So it was pretty extraordinary. What you do is you get on the ground in the occupied territories in Jericho and in the town where Bassam lived and where his daughter died. Trying to get a feel, it's the first time I've actually felt like what it is like to live in the territories. I guess you traveled around there, you saw everything, and you talked to people there, right? Yeah, I spent a lot of time there. You know, I went back and forth. I traveled with Rami. I traveled with Bassam. I stayed in their houses. I met their families. You know, I walked in the hills. I, you know, met people like Raja Shahade and, and David Grossman. And, and, you know, I talked with people Um, basically tried to soak it up like some sort of sponge, which is kind of what I like to do. Uh, for me, writing is an adventure. You're an explorer of, of new territory happens to be territory of the human consciousness or, or the heart much of the time. But also, I wanted to put the reader there. I wanted them to sort of taste the dust that's there in the air and the beauty and the gorgeous area of the world, too. It's so extraordinary. And I wanted to capture some of the tension that's there and to talk about what it feels like to walk through a checkpoint. Young Israelis have no clue what it feels like to walk through a checkpoint. I think if, if we're going to institute some sort of peace program in some way, it would be an extraordinary thing for all of us to experience the ritual sort of humiliation that occurs when you go through one of these checkpoints in you know Bethlehem or all over the place. And then it develops into further arguments about ideas of fear, ideas of security, ideas of changing the narrative, I wanted the reader to feel, the, I, I know, the, the polyphonic nature of what is going on over there. What I found in the stories of the checkpoints and what the Palestinians have to deal with on a daily basis 
And what shocked me in a way, but maybe it shouldn't have, is that Israelis can't do that. They can't see any of that. They don't even know what it is because they're not allowed there. Yeah, it's really extraordinary. The only people who know what the checkpoints feel like are the Palestinians themselves. And obviously then the young Israeli soldiers who are manning these checkpoints, but they don't know what it feels like to be pushed through and go go through a, a you know, literally it's like being in a chute, revolving bars and things like that. And, you know, the Israeli government doesn't allow its own citizens to travel to uh, the West Bank or Gaza. They say for reasons of security. I met many, many, many young Israelis who said, I wish I could go there. Gosh, I wish I could go to Bethlehem. I would love to see what Jericho is like. I would like to see. But literally, they face a fine and even an imprisonment if they do go. So it's the Israeli government who actually do not allow their own citizens to travel to these places unless they are in a military uniform. There's a lot of time that you spend with Bassam's time as a young man in prison. Right. That was all just in interviewing and talking with Bassam? I mean, Bassam's story is extraordinary. Um, at the age of 17, he was the lookout on a small operation of a, a group of kids who had found these sort of dud grenades near Hebron, and he was sentenced to seven years in prison for his part in this operation. While in prison, he was commander of the Fatah unit, and he saw a documentary on Israeli TV about the Holocaust, and he was completely rocked sideways by it. It knocked him off balance completely. And he began to understand that we needed to know one another. The different sides needed to know what was going on. And he got out of prison at the age of 24. And one of the first things he did was he helped found a group called Combatants for Peace, which were people from both sides, people who had been in combat on the Palestinian side and people who had been in combat on the Israeli side. And they came together in Beit Jala to talk to one another. Then, this is where it's truly, truly extraordinary. Two years later, his daughter gets killed after founding um, Combatants for Peace. Then, a few years after that, he goes to Bradford in England to do peace studies and to do a master's thesis on the Holocaust, which is, I mean, that whole story in itself is just mind boggling. So, I sat with Bassam for days and days and days on end, asking him, you know, about his experience in prison, how he went on hunger strike, and so on, and what it was that led him to look at this situation so differently, with such radical insight into human nature, to think differently about what's going on. I mean, I think these two men are saints. I kind of hope that the world will see them as some sort of forerunners for a movement, a peace movement that is, you know, genuine and powerful and engaged and thoughtful because they certainly, when they, when they tell their stories, they're, they are heartbreaking. I was in floods of tears when I first heard it. And that sounds, it's embarrassing to tell you that, but it's true. When I first heard their story, I was just like, oh, I could hardly, I could hardly gulp any air down at all. You know, it sounds as if we're all talking about men here, but in fact, both Nurit, who is Rami's wife, and Sawa, who is Bassam's wife, also play a role in this, because both are very powerful women. 
how did they perceive your project? And there's no mention of how the two of them relate with each other. I was there in November, and we we brought all of them together. We all met in the the American Colony Hotel. They have met each other a few times over the years because their husbands are best friends, but it's difficult for them to actually physically get together. They are extraordinary women, and I'm really glad that you brought them up. Nurit will not the book because it's just too difficult for her, um, and she performs her politics in other ways. She's a pretty extraordinary, outspoken, left-wing Israeli who teaches at the university level. And Salwa, who is the wife of Bassam, is quiet and steadfast and, and really strong in her own way. They both support the work that their husbands do, but neither of them want to talk about what happened. To their daughters, even though their husbands spend their whole lives going around the world talking about what happened to their daughters. It's an extraordinary mishmash of all these different emotions. And Richard, it's incredibly complicated. And that's why it's beautiful, because it's complicated. And the one thing I didn't want to do with the book was to, to reduce it to simplicities or sound bites. And hopefully I achieved that. I don't know. I'd like to change the topic while we've got a few minutes. This is being recorded on March 26, 2020. And over the course of the past month and a half, anyone listening to this now, and maybe it'll sound very different in a rerun a year or two from now, mm-hmm. most of us, particularly those of us from New York, California, are in isolation either alone or with our families, and we have no idea how this is going to change. In Israel, as of today, and it'll be different in a week, I don't know, uh, Netanyahu seems to have taken on dictatorial powers, and his arch-rival seems to have accepted this. How do you think, Colin McCann, what the COVID-19 pandemic How do you think that affects, on some level, what's going on in the Middle East, in Palestine and Israel? You know, Gaza has its first cases. And Gaza is, as you know, one one of the most tightly packed, densely packed areas, if not the most densely packed area in the world. Uh, The extraordinary impact of what might happen there is so frightening. I've been reading about the quarantine in Bethlehem and people telling stories about you know what it's like to live under what they term a sort of double occupation an occupation by this virus as well i don't know if it's for me to say what's going on in israeli politics or palestinian politics but i know that rami and bassam are both terrified that even more dictatorial powers will be exerted over their lives uh, they've said this to me personally that They are very scared about the swing towards the extreme right in Israel. And, you know, Rami talks about it. Rami, the Israeli, talks about Israel being slightly right of the till of the Hun and people accepting that. He is very much on the left wing of things. But the left wing in Israel, it's vibrant in certain ways, but it's not being heard like other sections of the country are. And I suppose it's the job of artists and the job of people who are engaged to tell this story over and over and over again. Is that enough? 
probably not, but it is something. And the more we listen to Rami and Bassam and listen to their stories, they will put a crack in the wall of your heart. And eventually they feel that they are on the right side of history. By talking about these things, by standing up and by talking about peace in a profound and necessary way, they say we will be judged by history and we will be on the right side of history in the long run. And I think they're correct. It seems to me that this year, 2020, is kind of a crack in humanity. Mm. There are different ways that the planet can go, but on some level, if not today or two weeks from now, but maybe months from now, things could shift in a major way in many places. And it seems to me that one of the things that could shift, hopefully, is that people look at areas of conflict in a completely new light. At least that's my hope. I would hope um, that somehow you are correct. I have to say that I have detected my book tour got cancelled and I've started to do things as we're doing, you know, like in isolation, doing things on the internet. I've always been terrified by social media and, and I think it's been used by people to do terrible things, including trying to de- destroy reputations and all sorts of things that, that go on. How and ever, there is a feeling out there now. I talked with kids in, in Kentucky from a high school in Kentucky, Floyd County High School, and kids in the University Heights in the South Bronx. And we did it all online through Zoom. And there was a feeling of coming together. It was a feeling that almost we were going to be able to harness the energy of the internet and and of technology and somehow begin to use it for good, that it was going to bubble, come from the ground up, rather than being pressed down upon us, which it has been for a long time, that something is occurring whereby we begin to recognize one another and use this potentially as a force for good. Does that sound naive? I don't know. I do know that what's happened to me over the course of the past few days, and will probably be continuing now for several weeks, is that I'm having these very long phone conversations, Mm -hmm. the kind of conversations I had 20 years ago with relatives, with friends, just connecting by phone in, in a way that we haven't really done. I mean, we're connected by typing, but not by phone, and that's changed. You know, I'm away from my family right now. You know, they were in New York, so they had to go through, you know, isolation. I'm in a cabin in the woods and missing them terribly. And yet there are new ways in which I can talk with my son, you know, communicate with him. And he's he's reading Osip Mandelstam's poems right now. We, we get online and we talk about the use of the word cathedral and light and all these things. My son is 21 years old and he's, he's really interested in, in literature. And these are new ways. I mean, the human spirit always finds something that can turn uh, some of this difficulty into into excellence. And I just hope that we can do it in the right way. It can also be misused. Let's not forget that these things can be used as tools of violence, of domination, occupation, war, all of these different things that can go ahead if we don't marshal the powers properly. Colin McCann, one final question. You're up there in this cabin. Are you working on another book now? 
I wish. I really wish. You know what's funny? I don't know what to do. I feel like I worked so long and hard on this novel and I put so much into it over the years that I'm not exhausted by it, but I haven't yet found the topic that I really want to work on. And I think some of it has to do with this age that we're in right now. I'm so confused. I don't know where to stop and I don't know where to start. I don't know what to write about anymore, except I do know that we need to keep going. I do know that we need to keep sort of knowing one another. And I do still think that stories and storytelling and the storytellers, the young people in the schools and the teachers and so on, they're the ones who are going to provide the sustenance that we need in order to carry on. So I'm sort of holding out for a story that talks about storytelling. You've been listening to an interview with Colin McCann, whose latest book is A Paragon, a Novel. This interview was recorded using the Zencaster website. Special thanks to Richard Lavin for post-production assistance. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. <laughs>